John 11, verses 38 through 54. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now, it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time he'll be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So he removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we once again pause and ask for your blessing upon your word. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would teach all of us, that you would bring upon our hearts and minds conviction of sin, that you would help us to see the glorious splendor of your Son, Jesus Christ. There would be some in this place, perhaps, that come to a saving knowledge of him this day for the first time. We ask that you would grant them eyes to see and hearts to believe, that you'd call the dead to life just as Jesus has done in this text. Lord, thank you so much for the marvelous way in which you continue to work in our hearts and minds and our lives. And we ask that this morning you would make us attentive to your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. Those words are recorded in John 15:13, as Jesus is giving some final instructions to his disciples shortly before his own crucifixion. There can be no doubt that love is nowhere more greatly displayed than in an individual's willingness to sacrifice his own life for the life of someone else. What motivates that sort of selfless giving of oneself for another person's benefit? 
What motivates the split-second decision of a United States Marine to throw himself on top of a grenade when that's thrown into the middle of his squad? As Justin shared the other day, what motivates a man following the crash of his airplane into icy cold water to place person after person onto a helicopter's lifeline, ultimately to the consequence of his own life? What makes firefighters run into buildings that are engulfed in flames? What pushes first responders to move in the opposite direction of everyone else? What causes first responders on that fateful day some 11 years ago, on September 11th, to have for them to move towards these buildings that had planes that crashed into them while everyone else is fleeing away? I'm still amazed by the stories of heroes who up to the very moment of the collapse of those buildings were running inside in an effort to save people who were trapped within those buildings. You see, we all love heroes. Stories of great heroic action thrill us. They move us. They challenge us. They produce gratitude in us. Children and adults alike love hearing, reading, and watching the recounting of heroic deeds. Think of the massive industry that exists today around superheroes. The comic strips have now gone to the big screen with millions of dollars being spent telling fictional stories, tales of heroism. But whether you're reading The Odyssey or Beowulf or you're watching The Avengers, we love entering into stories of of heroes. You see, our presentation of these narratives may have received some special effects upgrades today, but no matter where you live in history... True to the human condition is a love for heroic tales. But what is the sine qua non of heroism? What is required to classify something as heroic? What elements have to be present for it to be an act of heroism? In classical mythology, a hero was typically a being with godlike skills, dexterity, and ability. In some cases, these heroes were Immortal beings, demigods, actually something very, very close to our modern day idea of the superhero. In others, they were merely particularly gifted human leaders who had special strength and courage or ability. Heroes were not necessarily moral exemplars. Oftentimes, these heroes had many faults, but they were able to accomplish some great task in the face of insurmountable odds. Now today, when we think of a hero, typically it's a person who has great courage, yes, some some amount of ability, but this person is usually admired for not only his or her bravery, but also for his or her nobility, their moral conduct. Usually a hero needs to be someone whose acts and motivations are selfless, aimed at the benefit of others. Many heroes come from humble beginnings, but are able to face difficult trials and hardships and emerge on the other side, Sometimes even bruised or scarred, but a hero does not give up when the going gets tough. A hero faces setbacks with renewed determination to win ultimate victory. A hero will stop at nothing to help others in need. He will willingly sacrifice his own comfort, his own safety, his own security in order to rescue others who are in need or in danger. And the ultimate hero is always the one who risks and possibly even expends his own life in the saving of someone else. So why do we have this love affair with 
heroes? Why do we crave to hear stories like these? Why do they move us? Why are we brought to tears when we consider them? Some of us are told these stories with the intent that they would motivate us to similar sorts of actions. Who hasn't at some point in their life wished that they could fly? Or stop a speeding bullet or shoot webbing out of their wrists? Maybe not that last one, but who, who, who hasn't thought of these things before? Having power to do incredible things feeds human pride. We like to think of ourselves as independent, as autonomous, as able to do anything and everything. We can easily fall into the trap that comes with being the hero, the glory that follows, the men's applause. And the hero does typically receive accolades and praise. However, if the hero dies, he doesn't get to bask in that, does he? But perhaps the hero in such cases is motivated by the thought of leaving a lasting mark on the world before he died. But even this seems a little short-sighted, for there's no guarantee that people will actually remember your act of heroism. Many heroes have already faded into obscurity. You see, hearing of heroic acts does have a tendency to impact our goals and dreams. There are a good number of things that are indeed worthy of imitation in heroes that we hear about. However, even heroes are not perfect. And if we knew every nook and cranny of those heroes' lives, we'd find things that would cast flaws upon an otherwise seemingly good record. What's more is the fact that heroes die points to something very, very basic to the human condition. You see, no matter how great the hero, all human heroes are themselves in need of rescue. I think what ultimately drives our love of these stories is that there is an understanding of a deep need in us. We all need a hero. We all need to be saved, whether we admit it or not. Now, over the past couple of years in particular, Justin and I have attempted to make this point so clear. We can read of the lives of saints who have gone before us and learn from them. When you read Hebrews 11, and, you're just, and you have there described to you the heroes of faith, there's a great many things that can be learned from the examples that they've put before us. But the problem with so many treatments of these Old Testament characters is that people often look to these passages as merely material for teaching morality. Much of the Bible has been reduced to something akin to Aesop's fables, teaching some point of morality or wisdom. But as Justin has made super clear, this doesn't leave us with good news, does it? It just leaves us burdened with more to do. And this is precisely the problem with every false religion. It leaves all of its adherents with the idea of something more to do, which no one is able to keep perfectly. That's not good news. There's no peace in human striving. There's just more work and more disappointment. Ultimately, what we come to discover is that each of the men and women in Hebrews 11 were themselves in need of rescue. All those heroes needed a hero. And that's good news to us too. Because no matter how good we are, we are not perfect. And therefore, we do not merit a place with God. The last two verses in Hebrews 11 are so clear in this point. It indicates there that these men and women who uh, of faith were approved due to their trusting in God. But they were trusting in God's provision. And we're told that they did not receive what was promised in their lifetime. All of this is pointing forward to a coming day when, a, when the true superhero would arrive on the scene. 
You see, all of the Old Testament was pointing forward to a hero who would rescue all of God's people. We almost looked to that champion who would do battle with the giant we could not face. We must look to the lamb that would lay down his own life on our behalf and the scapegoat that would take our sins outside the camp into the wilderness. We must seek rescue in the only vessel that can weather through the flood of God's wrath. We must look to the greater prophet who would reveal to us in the fullest way possible who God is because He was God's Son. The greater King who could conquer all of our foes and rule us for God's glory and for our good. And the greater priest who would intercede on our behalf to a holy God and provide reconciliation for us. You see, Jesus came as the very hero that everyone needs. But He wasn't the hero that many expected. He came as a physician to the sick. He came as a sight giver to the blind, a healer to the lame, a gospel proclaimer to the poor, a life giver to the dead. In other words, He came to give exactly what we need because that's all of our condition. We're spiritually blind and sick and lame and poor and dead. But to those who, from pride-filled, hardened hearts, refuse to admit their need, Jesus was and is an annoyance, a distraction, a hindrance, an unwelcomed visitor, a violator, an intruder. And as his popularity with the common populace rose, so did the hate from those who felt those ways against him. We begin to see just how wise Jesus has been throughout his ministry. How many times have we seen the great pains that Jesus has taken to kind of control word that's spreading about him? He took great pains to provide proof of who he was, but doing so with discretion, going to a lot of areas outside of Jerusalem. He performed many great miracles. He showed his power and his compassion as God's son to those around him, but he carefully monitored the way in which news spread. He avoided the final conflict with the religious establishment until it was the right time. The Jewish leaders, the chief priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, complained that Jesus didn't provide evidence to back up his claims. They repeatedly accused Jesus of blasphemy, but they failed to connect Jesus' works with his words. They were right to catch the implication of Jesus' words as well as his straightforward, explicit statements. Jesus was claiming deity. He was claiming to be God. But what they failed to understand is that Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was. It wasn't an act of blasphemy for God to call himself God, for he is God and can call himself God. Jesus told the Pharisees in John 10, If I do not do the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. You see, here we get to the heart of the matter. It's never been for a lack of evidence that the unbeliever rejects Jesus Christ. Religious leaders are presented with the clearest possible evidence here in John 11. Lazarus is raised from the dead. But when they are presented with that information, their instant reaction is to flatly reject Jesus and to conclude that they must put him to death. You see, making a decision regarding the identity of Jesus 
is most certainly the biggest decision of your life. It truly is a matter of life and death, for life and death are in His hands. We are all in need of a hero, and not just any hero, but one who can do battle with foes that none of us are capable of defeating. Sin, death, the devil. A decision is before all of us, and a choice must be made. Will you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, the only name under heaven by which men may be saved? Or will you reject Him and face death alone? You need a hero. But will you call out to Him for help? In a sermon entitled The Matter of Life and Death, I'd like to walk through our text with three markers that will describe the length to which Jesus has gone to rescue us. I want to admire Jesus as the ultimate hero today. Because I believe that every other story of heroes pales in comparison with this one. I first want us to note the miracle, the dead resurrected by life. We'll then secondly look at the response, the life sentenced to death. And then we'll consider the irony, the death of death in the death of Christ. First, we must begin with this marvelous miracle. Here is the miracle, the dead resurrected by life. Verse 38 to verse 44. We have to begin with the contemplation of the smell of death. Jesus comes to Lazarus' tomb. Again, he's deeply moved, we're told in the text. This may be his reaction to the unbelief that he just experienced. Look at verse 37. Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? Next verse. So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. This could be a response to that unbelief and cynicism that the crowds around him are expressing. Couldn't this guy who was able to heal this man born blind, couldn't he have prevented Lazarus from having died in the first place? Or as we discussed, his deep emotions being expressed here could be his identification with the sisters and the crowd who are mourning the loss of Lazarus. He's entering into the sorrow and pain that they were experiencing. Or, as Calvin explains, Christ does not approach the sepulchre as an idle spectator, but as a champion who prepares for a contest. And therefore, we need not wonder again why he groans, for the violent tyranny of death which he had to conquer is placed before his eyes. Calvin will be saying this is Jesus getting on his game face. He's ready to do battle with death. Jesus commands that the stone which is covering the tomb be removed. And Martha, who's standing right next door to him, says, immediately objects here, Lord, already there's a smell. Literally reads, it's the fourth. It's the fourth day. Martha knows that time is no friend of death. Lazarus' body by now would be decomposing. And opening a grave would just unleash the smell, the stench of death. Jesus replies to her, Did I not say to you that if you might believe, you will see the glory of God? This seems to be a sort of compilation of Jesus' previous statements. He doesn't say it just like that in any of the other recorded statements we have. So either A, he said this on a previous occasion in one of those dialogues he had with her, or B, it's a compilation of some of these other statements he's made. Remember, he told the messengers who came to him, telling him that Lazarus was sick, he told that messenger to go back and tell Martha and Mary, this sickness is not to end in death, 
but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Then when he arrives in Bethany, and he talks to Martha, he tells Martha, your brother will rise again. Then he declares that I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. He asks Martha, do you believe this? Martha responds, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Yet here she is, after that marvelous statement of faith. Yes, I believe you're the Christ. Yes, I believe you're the Son of God. Yes, I believe you're the one promised coming into the world. After having made that marvelous declaration of faith, here she is, seemingly hoping against hope, too afraid to think that her brother really could be raised from the dead. Perhaps she's concerned to save Jesus from face here on this occasion. I mean, what a faux pas it would be for him to open this grave with everyone watching and the stench of that come out of the grave being just unbearable for those standing around. There is no question that what we have here is a dead body. And that dead body, no one but God could do anything about. Jesus had to once again in this moment, refocus Martha's attention. Refocus her attention off of the dead condition of her brother's body. Yeah, considering Lazarus' dead body would just be a depressing thing, a despairing consideration. He wants to move her focus away from Lazarus' dead body to himself. To himself, the giver of life. The one through whom the glory of God was displayed. You see, God always keeps His promises. So we need to anchor our hopes in Him. Unlike so many other things in this world which disappoint, God never does. Jesus offers this correction. Martha, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? You see, every act of heroism has a context. There has to be a need established for which the hero enters into the scene and provides aid. There must be a task to be accomplished. There must be a damsel in distress, a princess to be saved, a villain to be slain, a mountain to be climbed, a trial to be braved. And the harder the task, the greater the danger, the higher the cost to the hero, the greater the act of heroism. If there is no danger... If there's no conflict, if there's no need, then a hero is not called for, and quite honestly, his presence is not welcomed. Can you imagine the scene, an idyllic scene out in the park, a family eating their bacon sandwiches, Justin, and here comes a hero. He leaps onto the blanket and says, I'm here to save you all. His presence would not be welcomed. He would be shooed away. If there's no danger, if there's no conflict, if there's no need, the hero is not called for. His presence is not welcomed. And I really believe this is a massive problem confronting much of modern evangelism today. So much of what is supposedly called evangelism ends up just telling people that Jesus came merely to provide them with earthly prosperity. What we refer to as the health and wealth gospel. And that thing is just flat out false. People who experience worldly success, when they hear that message might see Jesus as a hero for those who are impoverished, who need an opiate to placate their depressed lives, but not for those who have it together, who have nice houses and nice stock holdings and a position in a good company, who are making good money. 
This is why we do people a great disservice when we fail to communicate the need of every man that Jesus came to save sinners. It's not your physical prosperity that is most important. It's your spiritual state. We must confront people and show them their spiritual bankruptcy, their lack of conformity to God's law. We must use God's law as a tutor to bring people to Christ because they'll never cry out to a Savior if they don't see that they're in need of being saved. They'll never cry out for a Savior to save them from death until they reckon that they're spiritually dead. You see, they must come to grips with the smell of death. They must recognize that the stench of death is all about them. They must see that all of their particular sins are just really an expression of a spiritually dead condition. Telling people that Jesus loves them and died for them makes no sense without context. If I told you, if I, to, if I was told that, and was given no context for that statement, in the very least, I would be shocked. I would think Jesus is a crazy man. Because I didn't need anyone to die for me. Needless. Needless death. In the worst case, I'm offended. Because you're making assumptions that I need to be saved. I'm not convinced that I need any saving at all. An example of an unwelcome savior comes from our government today. So you've heard of some of the new legislation being passed in the city of Houston. A lot of things that are traveling around the country around obesity. The idea to cut down the size of soft drinks served at restaurants. The, the limitation of how many fast food restaurants can be planted in a certain area. All of an effort to enforce a certain standard of health. Well, People who don't find this to be a danger to themselves see this as an unwelcome piece of legislation. We feel it to be an infraction of our rights of citizenship if someone says that they're saving us from something that we ourselves don't see as a problem. So similarly, we've got a problem when we share the gospel and we don't present the problem. You can't talk to people about Jesus without talking about sin and judgment. They must be presented together to establish what is our need. Only once a man has come to the end of his rope and has admitted his inability to save himself, will he be humbled and broken and cry out for a Savior. That's the other element of this, right? You not only have to see that you're in a desperate state, that you're in danger, but you also must come to recognize that you are incapable of rescuing yourself. Because there are some people that would admit, yes, I had done some wrong things, but I've done a lot of good things. That's going to counterbalance the rest. I can be my own Savior. That person must be Emptied of all that self-righteous pride and arrogance and humbled and broken before they'll ever cry out to Jesus. So the starting place is to inform people of their true need. We must really feel how bad death is. You see, only Christianity then is equipped to deal with the dreadful reality of death. The reason why we can make such a big point about the bad news of sin and death is because following on the tail of that is good news. We've got the best news to share. You see, only Christianity can provide help because we point to a Savior who can raise the dead. This is where we think of the wonder of life. Sometimes we take for granted life. It is a precious gift. And I bet on this particular day, Martha and Mary's perspective on the subject got transformed. The stone is taken away. 
and there's left no room for misinterpretation of the event that's about to transpire, I can only imagine what it must have been like. Let's enter into this together. Everyone, especially Martha, is holding their breath. Probably for more than one reason, right? They're holding their breath. And in stunned silence, Jesus raises His eyes to heaven and He gives thanks to God the Father for always hearing Him. I really believe, He tells us here, He says this more for the benefit of those who are around Him. He goes, I know you always hear me, Father. But I'm saying that so these around me would understand what's going on here. The transaction that's transpiring today. That there be no mistake about what was about to happen was to rebound to God's glory and to demonstrate that Jesus was sent by His Father to accomplish this very thing. Then Jesus speaks with a loud voice. I think that's interesting. He speaks with a loud voice. Did, did Lazarus need up to volume? I mean, does a dead man hear better if it's louder than when it's softer? And couldn't Jesus have whispered and it would have been the same accomplished, the same thing? He absolutely could have. So why does he yell? Why does he raise his voice? Obviously, I think this again is for the benefit of the gathered crowd that they would hear his words as he spoke to the dead corpse. This was no parlor trick. This was no act of illusion. But life is being given to a dead corpse. Jesus, the resurrection of life, can speak and life be given to the dead. Jesus addresses Lazarus directly. Lazarus, come out! Good thing too, otherwise the whole cemetery would have risen and greeted those in attendance. In fact, and, and we, we chuckle about that, and many people have mentioned that, but understand that that's real and true. Understand, this is just a glimpse of what's going to happen one day. First Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. There will be a shout, and the dead will come up. They will rise. This event is purely just a foretaste of the great things that are yet to come. And that resurrection will be much better than the resurrection that Lazarus experienced on this day. The resurrection that Lazarus experienced would be one that would end in death again. But the one that's yet to come will be a resurrection unto eternal life. Here we are. Lazarus, come forth! Come out! And out comes Lazarus. His arms, his legs, his face, wrapped in bandages. What a moment that must have been. Can you picture it? Can you place yourself there? These inquisitive stares at Jesus. What on earth is he doing? He's about to remove this stone. We're going to be hit with this nasty stench. And then a bewildered silence. The tomb is open. Nothing's happening. And Jesus looks up and then says, Thank you, Father, for always hearing me. I'm saying this so these around me would hear this. I know you hear me. I'm sure those looks inquisitive as they staring at Jesus in bewildered silence. And then Jesus calls Lazarus forth. I'm sure gasps of shock and awe. I'm sure jaws dropped. A mummy appears. I'm sure some fearfully stepped back. Others probably just froze still. Others rubbing their eyes, finding it hard to believe. This formerly dead man is now alive. One thing for certain, I bet everyone in attendance was more pale than Lazarus was. 
And then Jesus jolts everyone out of their stunned silence by commanding that they loose him and let him go. This is very similar to the statement that Jesus makes to Jairus' family. Remember when he raises Jairus' daughter, that 12-year-old girl from the dead? He tells her little girl, get up, and he, he lifts her from her bed, and then he commands that something be given to her to eat. Again, probably one of those moments, you know, just shock and awe, stunned, frozen, silence. What on earth is going on here? And as again, as this mummy comes out, this is Jesus' delightful way of shaking them all back into their senses. Help him! (laughs) Remove the bandages! I'd like to point out something, though, here. Jesus could have moved the stone himself without a word, right? I mean, if he could raise Lazarus from the dead, certainly moving... An inanimate object, a stone, be no problem for him. He could have also had those bandages that wrapped Lazarus fall off. For that matter, he could have had them disintegrate. But instead, he makes use of people to do these things. He commands that the stone be moved, and he commands that these bandages be removed from Lazarus. Why? Why? These acts would... I think there's at least two things we can mention here. I I believe these acts would definitely draw these witnesses all the more into the scene. I mean, multitudes of senses are brought into this action. Everything from a discussion of the smells that might be emanating from this grave, to the sight of a walking mummy, to the hearing of Jesus' words, to, to even now here touching Lazarus and removing the bandages. This formerly dead man was now alive, and there is no doubt about that. But we may also gather further from this arrangement a further spiritual principle that our work is still important. Even if we cannot raise the dead, even if we cannot save a soul, we are called to be obedient servants. For God is making use of us to fulfill His purposes. We do not grant life. I can't make a dead body come to life any more than I can grant a spiritually dead soul spiritual life. I can't do either of those two things. We don't grant life. Yet we're called to announce the gospel. We're called to go and preach. Even if only God can cause growth, we're called to plant. We're called to water. We're called to reap. We're called to remove stones. To move stones. Move barriers to the gospel. We're called to do the work of removing the garments of the old man. Put off the old man and put on the new. We're called to do the work of removing garments of the old man, which we still struggle with even after being given life. For those raised to life, there's work to be done. There are good deeds that God has prepared beforehand for us to accomplish. This is a tremendous privilege and a tremendous honor. There's the miracle. But second, notice the response. Let's notice the response. The life sentenced to death. Jesus referred to himself, I am the resurrection and the life. And here we see the life. Jesus sentenced to death. First of all, note in verse, 30, uh, verse 37, some ask, could not this man Jesus have kept this man Lazarus from dying? The answer there is Yes. But it would have been at the expense of God's glory being displayed in the rescue of many lives. Jesus brought many to saving faith through this act. And we already talked about this a couple weeks ago. But that delay was purposeful 
to bring about this present result. Jesus, when He gave thanks to God in prayer, said that He did this with a specific purpose that those standing around Him would believe that the Father had sent Him. This is the very purpose for which John wrote his Gospel. John wrote this Gospel. He said, there's many other things that could have been included. Not even the sky could contain the scroll if we were to write everything that Jesus did. But the things that have been recorded here for this purpose, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He wrote these things on purpose. The selection of the material was purposeful. Jesus' actions here were purposeful. The timing of the event was purposeful. He did these things that those around Him who had gathered to mourn with Martha and Mary, that they would see this act and believe that He was sent by the Father. This also helps us to explain why there are so many questions that are that we just don't get answered. Many of us want to do an interview of Lazarus. Ever thought about wanting to do that? What was it like to die? Do you remember where you were? Were you conscious while you were gone? But all of those questions aren't answered in the text. And for good reason. It's not the main point. Our curiosity about specifics that we will encounter upon death are left concealed. But what we are presented with is Him who alone can breathe life into the dead. The point of the text is not to give us a a glimpse into what happens after death. The point of the text is to point our focus and direction to Jesus who gives life to the dead. I'm surprised by the amount of fascination that people have with events following death. People have written books of supposed experiences that they had had while they were in a near-death experience. But all we really need is Jesus. Even death cannot separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So give your focus to Christ. And don't waste your money and time with books of questionable out-of-body experiences and near-death scenarios. Give your focus to God's Word. That which you can depend upon as true and faithful. The real question here is, how will you respond to Jesus Christ? Well, there were some that believed. But there's another group of individuals. Look at these. Verse 45. Many of the Jews came to Mary. They saw what had been done. Believed in Him. Wonderful. But see how His action always drew a line. We see a division between those who believe and those who don't. And there's no other category. You either believe or you don't. Verse 46. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus had done. And we're not told specifically what is the motivations of these people that went to the Pharisees, but it seems implied from the text that it wasn't anything good. They're going to the religious leaders, the very ones who have openly voiced their aversion to Jesus, and now they're going to tell them about what happened. So what do the Pharisees do? Well, the Pharisees gather the chief priests and council is convened. The Sanhedrin meets Religious leaders note in their little conference, they don't question the reality of what happened. Nobody's there debating. Did he really raise him from the dead? Nobody's saying, was had Lazarus just swooned? Was he just hanging out in that cave? Was this all a deliberate setup? Nobody's debating that. They absolutely believe that Jesus just rose Lazarus from the dead. They say, this man is performing many signs. Interesting here. Not even that he's performing miracles, but signs. He's doing things that are pointing to the reality that He is something great. And while we don't want to admit what these are actually pointing to, we admit that they are pointing to something. 
But the concern is that Jesus will actually develop a following. That's the problem here. If he continues the way that he is, everyone's going to believe. And people are going to start following him. They're concerned that Jesus is going to be successful. They're concerned that that Jesus is actually going to have people believe and follow him. And then their pride and arrogance, they go, what must we do? In other words, we can stand up to this and stop this from happening. What's their big concern? Well, they kind of, you know, maneuvered themselves politically into a pretty sweet deal with Rome. And they're concerned that if they rock the boat at all with Rome, they've seen what Rome has done with little city-states that have tried to exercise their own freedoms. Rome comes in and squashes the rebellion and sets up their own leaders. And so what are they concerned about? Well, if Jesus gets a gathering and they start following him, and he, when he comes into here and Rome sees it, they come and squash everything, we're going to be squashed in the midst of it, and our place and nation are going to be destroyed. Place here is probably a reference to the temple. Our place, our position here within the temple complex is going to be destroyed. Our nation is going to be ripped apart. What are they concerned about here? Their position, their prominence, their power in the nation. I think even that statement in the nation is just kind of added to try to couch what's really going on there. They don't care about people. They're caring about themselves. See, political reasons are the guiding are guiding the decisions of the religious leaders. And note this with me, guys. You don't see one mention of prayer. You don't see one mention of searching the scriptures. You don't see one mention of discussing the facts of the case, trying to find out justice in this case. There's no appraisal of the evidence. It's just, this guy's doing some marvelous things. We're scared he's going to be successful. Rome's going to come and get us. So this is what we need to do. Now note, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are also not the best of friends. They have a lot of differences with one another. They have significant differences with one another. But due to their common hatred of Jesus, they don't mind getting along for this purpose. This reminds me of Psalm 2. I had it read this morning at the end of the service. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. You see, what the psalmist is depicting to us is the nations plotting and scheming together to overthrow the Lord. But their efforts are all vain, right? They're dealing with the omnipotent God. He doesn't lack any power to deal with them. And they're dealing with the omniscient God, the God who knows and sees and hears all things. The only thing that makes a plot work is if it's somewhat sneaky. (laughs) But how do you sneak around with Him to whom all things are laid bare? God sees the plot from the very beginning. He frustrates their plots. The Lord has installed His King upon Zion. In other words... You can't dethrone Jesus. Yet here the Jewish leaders are attempting to do this very thing. They're plotting together. They're scheming together. They're desiring to get rid of Jesus. And isn't it fascinating that the very name of the one raised from the dead is Lazarus. And it wasn't all that long before this event that Jesus told the story of a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. Remember both of these men died and 
Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom. The rich man goes to Hades, a place of torment. And while he's in torment, he has this dialogue with Father Abraham. Remember this? And he's pleading when he realizes that there's a chasm there and he can't even get a drip of water for his tongue. He says, well, at least send Lazarus back to tell my brothers so they don't come to this dreadful place. He says, well, he says, they have the law and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, there's been sufficient evidence regarding this given already in the Old Testament. He says, no, 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 but if someone raises from the dead, they'll surely believe. And what does Abraham say? Not even if someone raises from the dead will they believe. And while we obviously think of Jesus in the penultimate case, isn't it interesting that prior to that, Jesus actually raises a man named Lazarus from the dead. There he is, walking about. Testimony given to the religious leaders. And do they believe, guys? No. Matter of fact, all that it does is it causes them to push forward in their plot to crucify Jesus. Their unbelief was not from lack of evidence. It was proof. This, this moment is just proof of the hardened, calloused hearts that they had. They were bent on refusing the goodness of God displayed in His Son, Jesus Christ, who had come to save the lost, open the eyes of the blind, give life to the dead. The high priest explains that what they must do is pursue Jesus' death. It's no matter, it's no longer a matter of what to do with Jesus. They found him guilty on this occasion, even without a formal trial. Without being allowed to provide a defense, they now just need to find a way to get Jesus into custody without causing too big of a stir with the populace. And isn't it ironic that the consequences of the religious leader's rejection of Jesus is to bring the very things that they feared upon themselves? Were they able to stop people from believing in Jesus by killing him? Oh, no. Were they able to stop Rome from coming and destroying them? Oh, no. Only some 40 years later, 8070, the temple would be destroyed by Rome. You see, they thought that they could politically maneuver themselves into peace and prosperity, but they found that all their maneuverings were vain and futile and empty. So it is with many people today, attempting to maneuver themselves into a good place of safety and security. All the while, the only way you'll have true safety and security is if you find your rest in Jesus Christ. You see, to save their lives, to save their lives, they commanded that the Prince of Life be put to death. They thought this would, be, would bring about their salvation. Third and finally this morning, the irony and there is a whole lot of irony here. I've already mentioned part of it. The irony, the death of death in the death of Christ. There's a much bigger picture going on here. You see, the high priest was motivated by self-interest. He crassly puts down the rest of his companions. Pretty much tells them, you idiots. By the way, Josephus is uh, said to say that the high priest, the Sadducees, were typical to speak this way with one another. Some people have questioned whether or not Josephus was just upset with them or what. But anyway, at least it bears itself out here. You idiots. He says, you guys are so dense. Don't you see the beautiful situation put right up before us? This has been served up on a silver platter for us. This is what we're going to do. We're going to make Jesus the scapegoat. He's going to take the fall for the nation. And we're going to come off smelling like roses after we hand this Jesus over to Rome. Why? Because they're going to appear to be the loyal 
submissive, submissive subjects to Rome. Hey, Rome! This Jesus trying to get a band of people together, trying to revolt against you. We're going to hand them over to you. Look, we're the we're model citizens of Rome. We're going to secure our positions and we're going to get rid of Jesus all in one fell swoop. But this is where the irony gets so very thick. The high priest isn't aware that his words are more true than he knows. He himself is the dense one. He himself is the dense one. For he doesn't understand the full implications of the statement that he's just made. William Hendrickson says it well. Caiaphas was left entirely free was not prevented in any way from saying what his wicked heart urged him to say. Nevertheless, God's will, without becoming even in the least degree defiled, so directed the choice of phraseology that the words which issue from the lips of this cold-blooded murderer were exactly the ones which were needed to give expression to the most sublime and glorious truth regarding God's redemptive love. Without becoming aware of it, the villain had become the prophet. This reminds us of Jesus' words, or I'm sorry, Joseph's words to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many lives or to save many people. So these religious leaders meant for Jesus to be destroyed. But ultimately, Jesus' death would end in His resurrection from the dead and the saving of a great multitude which no one can number. Jesus had come from the very beginning with this very purpose in mind to lay down His life and through the laying down of His life save the life of many others, both Jews and Gentiles. Note that description to us given Verse 51, he didn't say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Verse 52, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. In this, Jesus would gather together a great company of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He would reverse the dreadful effects of the fall and the subsequent misguided efforts of fallen humanity to exalt themselves and make a name for themselves. Remember where that place was? They decided to build a tower under their own greatness. What was that called? Tower of Babel. Yes, the Tower of Babel. And remember, on that day that God came down, frustrated their plans, scattered the peoples, confused their languages. But isn't it wonderful that in the end, God is going to reverse the effects of the fall and He's going to reverse the effects of that judgment as He gathers now all of the dispersed peoples, all of these scattered peoples. He's going to gather them together into the city of God and they're going to join hands in pursuing one common goal. But this time, it will be what man's rightful goal has always been. To magnify the glory and splendor of God and to make much of Jesus Christ, His Son. The high priest of that fateful year ends up putting in motion the very set of events that would result in the abolishment of his own position and the need for the temple and its sacrifices. Jesus is the great high priest as the propitiatory sacrifice laid down his life willingly on behalf of those who trust in him. There would be no longer a need for priests and sacrifices from the Old Testament economy 
For the shadows and types had now been fulfilled in Him whom they pointed toward. Jesus had come. And He accomplished what the blood of goats and calves could never do. He purchased for God a people for God's own possession. A.W. Pink says, God can make the designs of His enemies work together for the good of His people and cause the wrath of men to praise Him. The greatest crime ever done in the world, the murder of Jesus Christ, in God's hands, ends up being the greatest blessing ever given to the world. Christ died to not simply make salvation possible, but to make it certain. We see His victory. We see the victory of life over death. It was not yet Jesus' time to die. So He went off to an off-the-beaten-trail town for His last days. Jesus would shortly hereafter return to Jerusalem and be arrested by these murderous religious leaders. He would be crucified and He would be buried. But He wouldn't remain there. Acts 2 declares, Men of Israel... Listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God, listen, with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through Him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. But God raised Him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. Since... It was impossible for him to be held in its power. We talked about this some time ago. When something is unclean, if something that is clean touches it, that clean thing becomes unclean. But with Jesus, he reverses that, doesn't he? He is the clean one, is able to touch the unclean and make the unclean clean. So the dead are raised to life by Jesus. When Jesus Himself met death, He couldn't be held down. His life is unconquerable. Death's effort to kill life resulted in death's death. Death cannot kill life. Death took on more than it could chew. It couldn't hold the Prince of Life. Because of Jesus' victory over the grave, death is swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians 15.54 Dear friends, a hero comes to the aid of those in danger. He has the ability to provide help to those who are in need. He's not just another victim. His involvement doesn't just add to the tragedy, but brings something good out of the disaster. He's willing to sacrifice personal desires, personal safety, personal comfort for the good of another. He'll risk and even give up his own life if it means saving someone else. Don't you see? There's no hero that compares to Jesus. He is the true superhero. He, while existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave and took on the likeness of men, humbling himself, becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. He not only risked his life, he gave up his life. No one took it from him. He willingly laid it down. And while men will rarely die for a just person and might dare to die for a good person, while we were still sinners, 
enemies, haters of God, Christ died for us. What love. What grace. What mercy. We might not, he might not be the hero that we would have ever expected. God Himself come to earth. But He is most certainly the hero we all need. Will you cry out to Him? Your response to this hero is a matter of life and death. Choose Jesus who is the resurrection and the life and you will live. For one day all the dead will be raised. Those in Christ to eternal life with Him. The rest to eternal judgment. In the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the marvelous, miraculous deeds of Jesus Christ and for His marvelous words. You're so thankful that there is a hero that can conquer the enemy of sin and death and the devil. We cannot do battle with these. We will lose against these. But in Christ, we have victory. Please cause us to sink our hopes and dreams all the more into Him. Remind us that it is not by our doing that we find security, but in what He has already done. Give us that wonderful security and peace that comes from knowing that we've been saved by Jesus' blood, by His righteous life and His sacrificial death, and by that alone. And then from that position of gratitude, may we serve You. We recognize we're not saved by works, but having been saved by grace alone, we're saved for works. So please help us to then be faithful servants of yours with the days that you've entrusted to us here. We thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.